Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a new podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this episode, Jonathan interviews Mike Hogan, a regional field director for the One Campaign, but also a former band member of the David Crowder Band for 13 years. In this conversation, Jonathan and Mike talk about his transition into the social justice world with the One Campaign, but also his experiences as a touring artist and what it meant for him to be a professional Christian. Enjoy. Well, guys, I'm really excited about this episode. One, it's a good time to be in Tulsa because U two's here tomorrow night opening the tour, which how on earth that happened that U two is opening in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is surreal to me in my town. I've been to like I've been to twenty three shows before, or is it twenty four, but never an opening night, so that'll be fun. But what makes this so great is that with the band coming down, uh, my dear friend Mike Hogan is here who's a regional field director for the One Campaign and the person who got me connected to the One Campaign where I've had a wonderful experience. And Mike, I'm just thrilled you're here, man. I'm so Thanks, honored man. to have you on the show. I think this is the one and only time I'll ever get like billing above you two. Oh, absolutely. Being in a place. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, it's that, like, yeah, the band's here. That's right. But more importantly, he's here. That's right. Yeah, you guys, so yeah, Bono's in town. But Mike, yeah. Mike is here. This is so great. <laughs> Bono's never been to Tulsa, but Hogan showed up. That's right. <laughs> now that's something. That's awesome, man. No, like we, you know, we've become really good friends. I mean, for that first time we hung out in Austin, and I just thought, especially since you know, in my own way, because I feel like I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot of things these days, but feeling more and more of a pull towards advocacy. I'm especially fascinated by your journey as as an artist and a musician and just even even your path into that world so you were with you were with the david crowder band for 13 years is that right yes okay ish 13 13, something like that yeah wow um started i mean we started as just a church band but i was a junior in college and just kind of followed that train Mm. until it ran out of track yeah basically (laughs) I didn't realize you started that young, junior in yeah, college. That's why. That's how I paid my rent those last couple of years, man. Um, but yeah, I was that. That was the thing. I I never set out to. Well, I I don't know. Some people set out with the goal in mind of being in a band and having it succeed. I mm. I. I didn't do that. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, it's just one of those things that sort of happened. It was. Uh, it was it was the right thing at the right time, and then it was a decision of what else am I going to do? Mm. Um, and it felt like, I mean it, that's oversimplifying it, but yeah, it was. It, it, that's just where my path led, mm. and uh, I did it. And it was an, it was a really exciting time to do that kind of stuff. Um, I felt like we kind of caught lightning in a bottle, mm. in some ways. Um, of course, like and this is a topic for a different day, but it's like the whole professional worship thing has kind of become its own <laughs> industrial complex sure. at this point. And you know, when I'm alone and in the shower, I'm thinking, did I have a was I a part of this? And is it is it good? Like with a capital G? Because I'm I'm not sure anymore, but it might be. Um, but anyway, that's a different 
conversation well, for maybe a different they were day. Not. I mean, I'm so intrigued by that. So, so you very much, uh, and I and I get this because I feel like this has even been, you know, some of my own journey. Was there there was this sense of being a professional Christian? And yeah, and those those weren't my words. So when when I got off the road, um, and was trying to figure out what what life looked like, um, not traveling and not playing music and like having to make all. This, this is going to sound weird, but like literally having to make like all of your own decisions at that point. Um, just because when you're, when you're in a, in a band and it's working, like a lot of the decision-making gets taken off your plate. Like you don't really have a say over like where you're going to be and when, and when um, a lot of that stuff is sort of kind of decided by teams. And um, so anyways, you get off the road and it's kind of this, culture shock in a way of like trying to figure out what does it like what does it mean to exist you know on your own and then what does it mean to exist like as in my case as a dad and as a husband and just a general working member of society like what does that look like and uh anyway uh, long story short a pastor friend of mine kind of sat me down and said well you've been a professional christian for over a decade so of course you're kind of messed up right now so I've been kind of unpacking that one for a while. Yeah. If you think about it in those terms. Yeah. Um, what? Sorry. So what was the question? No, you're answering I, it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, the, you're, you're just start, right, just start rambling. So this is so good. It's uh, you know, it's past my bedtime. It is. So. This is this is one of the later podcasts we've recorded. Um, so so how did that then begin to lead? So you was there necessarily an, an aspiration to go more of the activist route, or did you feel like it was more like what 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 started that trajectory yeah. for you from there? Uh, it's a good question. Um, so you know, with hindsight, so I've been kind of out of the musician life now for six years, ish, six and a half years almost, um, and just kind of with with hindsight and reflecting on it, I've realized that a, like I think a lot of my motivations for wanting to sort of jump into kind of that nascent like worship like, you know, recording career was that I felt like we had the capacity to do something, um, to do something really different. And I wasn't happy with like anything else I was hearing at that point. Like it just, it didn't speak to me. It didn't, um, didn't reflect like musically the sensibilities that I had. Mm. Um, and I think that was probably to one extent or another true of all the guys. Um, like we weren't happy with what, was being made. And so we wanted to make something that made sense to us. Mm. Um, so when I was coming kind of towards the end of the end of that journey, um, yeah, there had been like a couple of experiences that I'd had through our church, which we were based at, um, just with kind of, you know, working with orphanages in Africa and kind of this and that. And it was just this, there's no need to go into it, but I mean, it was like, it was deeply unsatisfying. There was some corruption involved on kind of the end of some of the people that were working there. So, um, I think honestly, that was probably the seed is like, I saw something that I knew should be better and it wasn't. Um, so when we were kind of developing our, you know, I say this, our, oops, our farewell tour, um, you know, we had a history of bringing kind of some social causes along with us on, on tours. And, um, 
for you know whatever reason it fell in my lap to kind of be the one who was into that and I had made friends with some people in the one campaign just um not because they worked there but just because that's the kind of way it worked out but um I kind of I came to them and said you know what would it look like if we brought you guys out and you and did what you do at you two stops but like shrunken down exponentially um I think with that mindset of like, you know, the church does some really, really amazing things, but it's just mathematically not scalable to what it could accomplish when you're dealing with the amounts of funding from the federal government. Mm -hmm. Um, And at this point, you know, you can say, well, it's important to note (laughs) that the federal government of the United States spends less than 1% of its budget on overseas development. So all the funding that goes towards, you know, programs are providing HIV and AIDS medication and are providing, you know, vaccines and infrastructure development for electricity and all these things that are really aimed at alleviating extreme poverty comes from so, so little, but that so, so little is still, I mean, an unbelievably large pool of money that even if every church in the United States, you know, were funding this, like it would not be as mathematically scalable as it is when the government is doing good work. So, um, I think I just saw that as an opportunity of, you know, I'm like, let's, let's do something really interesting here. And then after that, I was just really jazzed about it because, I was pretty burnt on music and on being, again, a professional Christian, but I was really kind of fired up about the idea of doing what I saw as kind of kingdom-minded work, but outside of the realm of the church. I'd love to even like press in for just a minute on just that dichotomy you raised because, and I understand this, but there are so many people, um, especially within church spaces who are going to say some version of, Hey, uh, yes, uh, we need to care for the poor. Yes. We need to, uh, to, to do this kind of work on the margins, but that's, that's the church's jobs, not, not the government's. I'd love for you to speak a little bit more to like that. You know, it's even talking about how mathematically that, that doesn't work. I mean, if, if every church decided tomorrow to have a donut sale, sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I just, I would, I would single-handedly fund it. Yeah, okay, <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but but when you what when when people when when you hear that like on the ground, what do you? Yeah, look, I mean, I I get it. Um, but it's you know, it's interesting. There was a so excuse like getting into kind of wonky policy stuff, but um, last fiscal year the. The administration proposed, I think it was like a 30 some odd percent cut to the foreign aid budget. Um, It's, you know, foreign aid is always kind of the lowest hanging fruit when they're wanting to cut programs because it's politically it's easy, you know. Um, And I can't remember, I want to say the organization Bread for the World came out with a study shortly thereafter that said they did the math and they crunched the numbers and it was... um, if that 30% cut was put into action, um, every single, not even church, but religious organization 
in the United States would have to raise and donate $871,000 that year just to like close the gap. Um, and that's 30%, right? So if you think about that, like if that's 30% of the overall thing that's going towards programs that are, I mean, quite literally saving people's lives, like there's not a church in America that's capable of doing that. Like I go to a pretty large church in Austin, Texas, and I guarantee you they would never send $871,000 to this because they couldn't. Sure. Um, and you know, I mean, that's a large church, right? Mm. So, I mean, look, I get the argument and, you know, people come to their political identity and their political beliefs, you know, in many, many different ways. But, um, I think when you just look at it objectively and see, and you, you look at the numbers one and then two realize like how much good comes from that relatively small amount of funding, like it starts to make a lot more sense and it becomes a lot easier to advocate that, you know, both just as a citizen and as a human, like a decent human. But, um, I mean, especially as a, person of faith like looking at it and saying like you know if you read what jesus says like you should be looking after the poor and this is a pretty easy way to do that i mean it's you're speaking up like you're acting as their voice in this conversation we have the resources um and anyway, that note, that's Mike, kind of how I came to it as I kind see. of a loopy sort of way, but yeah, no, no, that's so good. I just, I just realized this might maybe even as, as just a, an aside here because I so know and love the one campaign and even get to come to DC and get to lobby with you guys. Some, I mean, all that's been very formative for me, but I just realized it might be worth, uh, cause I don't want to presume anything like of our listeners. Can you say, Say just a bit about what the one campaign actually does. Sure. That foundation is probably important too. Yeah. Oh no, that's. <laughs> I didn't think to ask that. <laughs> I didn't think. I didn't think to tell you about it. So we were working on our own foundation. Right. We right. Not thinking of anyone else. Um, yeah. It's a one is a nonpartisan advocacy organization. We were founded a little over ten years ago. So Bono was one of our co-founders. Um, but we basically work as a mouthpiece speaking up on behalf of the, you know, some of the most impoverished people on the planet. So, um, people with a specific focus on sub-Saharan Africa who are living under a dollar and 95 a day. Um, so really what we do is advocate on behalf of federal and multinational programs that are providing, um, HIV and AIDS relief, uh, other preventable diseases, TB, malaria, that sort of thing, but also um, programs that are looking to establish first-time electricity to hospitals and schools and businesses that's reliable, um, you know, access to education. Um, we're currently working on a bill that just got introduced that um, kind of smooths the way for private businesses to invest um, economically in countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and where the government kind of mitigates some of the risk for that. So it makes it easier basically for people to both start businesses in sub-Saharan Africa, but also for American businesses to invest in that. So it's kind of a public-private partnership. Um, it's kind of wonky stuff. 
But um, I don't know, man. Like, I love the fact that, you know, we're one group that's, we've been working really hard, but in the time that one has been founded, you know, extreme poverty has been cut in half. That's, uh, that's I think I'm going to be really scared if this airs and I got that number wrong. No, that's like someone I might get, I might get fired (laughs) (laughs) again. It's late. Um, I don't know, man. Like there's been just so much good work that's been done. Um, and you know, I mean, we look at this thing and we look at like the millennium development goals for any weirdos out there that actually know what that is that are listening to this, but it's like, I mean, the UN has kind of set this goal of, uh, you know, eradicating extreme poverty by the year 2030. So that's kind of what we're working towards. Um, but there's a lot of good work that's been done, but there's a lot of good work that has yet to be done. You referenced um, a couple minutes ago, like the um, the proposed cut from the administration last time. I was curious because we are in such a uniquely polarized time. Um, it just it, what it's like right now, especially as a bipartisan group, just trying to navigate because one has been successful in ways that so many other organizations have not at working across both sides of the aisle. What, mm-hmm. what's, I don't want to say what's the secret to that, but maybe more like, especially like right now, what does that look like? Is it more challenging given the cultural polarity right now than usual in this season? Or has that kind of always been the case? I mean, it's never not challenging, right? Um, I think the good thing about our approach to this being what it is, is that, um, Extreme poverty doesn't care what side of the aisle you're on. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter if you are a Paul Ryan fanboy or a, you know, Nancy Pelosi, you know, super groupie or whatever. I mean, it doesn't matter, right? Like, um, if there's a mom with a child dying of AIDS, like she doesn't give a rip who you vote for. Um, So, I mean, I think that, you know, if we come to the table and you present something that like everyone can agree on, like no, no one wants, you know, lives lost to extreme poverty. Okay. Well, that's a great place to start. Like let's, we may not agree on anything else, but we can agree on that much. Um, And just start the conversation there. I think that's probably why we've been successful. Um, we thought, I mean, we've, we're also really pragmatic, like Congress changes every two to four years and we kind of look at the work, like this is a much longer game than an election cycle. Mm. So, um, we have to be pragmatic about it and willing and able to work with whoever's in power, regardless of their party. Um, and to come to those people and present them with a compelling case that's backed up by facts and research and that's accountable and transparent. Um, you know, I mean, I, we're pushing an agenda, but it's, it has nothing to do with political party. So I, th- I hazard a guess that that's probably why it's worked. Um, to answer your question, yeah, it is, it is hard. Um, fortunately though, we work really hard with our members and our volunteers to like establish and build relationships with those members of Congress so that, 
there's a constant drumbeat of them hearing from voters that say, look, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on, but this is like one tiny little issue that we care about. And this is important. Um, and we just work to build, to build up that kind of atmosphere where we can go and we can talk to them and have frank conversations. Um, and we, you know, we're lucky. We've got some real champions on both sides of the aisle, um, that we work really, really closely with. So, you know, that 30% cut last year, you know, through work we did, but also through work, you know, that other organizations did too. I mean, you know, the number went back and forth and I think it, we ended up kind of flat funding from the previous year. So, I mean, phew, like it worked, but it's like, we got to do it again. You know, we might have to do it again and again. That's just, that's just kind of the nature of the game. But, um, you know, you're always kind of pushing that rock uphill, but it's a worthy rock of pushing. Mm-hmm. Do you so, kind of bring this full circle a little bit? So now that you've been with the one campaign for six years, but coming from that space of, of being more a professional Christian as I've been most of my life, I'd love for you to say a bit about how that's changed you in general, but maybe in particular, how you, how you thinking about like, church and faith and culture these days like how's it changing (laughs) that groan type (laughs) i don't know that's a really good question um you know it's interesting man it's like i feel there's like i don't know if anyone's like written about it or anything but it's like you know you leave for college and you get out from under your parents belief right so there's like a there's a deconstruction that happens at that point um i felt like i've well, I, I, no, I don't, haven't felt, I do feel like it's been almost a six year process of, of a second deconstruction mm. in some ways. Um, cause I kind of realized that I went from my parents' faith, not really into my own faith. I went from my parents' faith into the quote unquote band's faith, which really was like whatever, you know, whatever people who came to see us play wanted it to be mm. in some ways. Like, yeah, I mean, we all had our own opinions and blah, we all did church and community and everything on our own. But, um, had I sat and really thought through that and formed that? No, mm. I don't think I did. Um, sorry, I'm going to just keep, I'm just going to ramble. No, this is I, good. I don't know this how else to answer the question, but, um, yeah, I don't know, man. It's it's been really fascinating because like this work has been so great and so such an avenue for growth for me. Um, like in some ways, I'm so happy that I'm way more aware of like what's going on in the world. There's a lot of times I wish I could shut that off and go back to being just blissfully ignorant of everything and sitting on a tour bus and watching MTV all day. Like sometimes that sounds awesome, but, um, it's not better, you know? Um, if anything, just kind of working, working through that, like becoming more politically aware, more theologically aware, and just kind of self-aware, I think, um, 
I don't know. I, I think it's made me a way, way less trigger happy when it comes to forming an opinion hmm. on That's on other people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, may, part of that may be the fact that, again, like we work in a bipartisan way and it's like so much of my life is taken up by work. Um, where it's like, you know, we have to, you know, we're talking to people from all sides who, who come at this from a vast array of, I keep hitting this lamp. I'm sorry. It's okay. I talk with my hands a lot. Um, people who come, you know, with a vast array of life and experience and um, I don't know. It's just maybe a lot slower to, to, to form an opinion on someone or something, which is probably good. Yeah. That might just be the fact that I'm 40 now. Hmm. Yeah. You and me both. Huh? <laughs> just cross that milestone. And, um, so I don't know. I mean, some of it's age, some of it's the fact that I'm not performing anymore. Like I had, I think I had to become comfortable in my own skin yeah. and confident to learn this kind of, this work that I do now. Um, I will say this, it's made my, I feel like it's made my playing a lot better because I still play some. Mm. Um, it's just made me more aware and in tune, I think. Uh, I'm, my wife may tell you something completely different <laughs> if you asked her, but um, no, it's, it, yeah, it's just really, it's really interesting. So it, it's bizarre to be like an adult and really realizing that you're kind of forming your own, like your own yeah. individual identity really for the first time. Not just saying this to be like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that is so where I am. And I, I, I turned 40 then March and I feel like there's, it's, just, it, it's crazy the ways in which I feel like I'm just now coming into full manhood in so many ways. Yeah. Because I think that sense of like, especially in terms of having a fully developed self where now yeah. you're enough on the, on, on the other side of the deconstruction to where you're actually building something now on right. the other side. What is that new construction? on the other side of the deconstruction, like it's so much Ram and it, I, I'm surprised at how much I still feel like I'm just now coming into that sense of yeah. self in that way. Yeah. It's really interesting, man. Um, like I turned 40 in January, you know, I mean, you, you have a birthday and it doesn't feel like anything, sure. but, um, it, I mean, I, I mean, culturally, I think we're conditioned to hit, like hit a certain age and like, well, I'm halfway there. Like, what does that yeah. mean? Um, I'm like, well, I mean, it, I guess it, you know, I'm having to like really like figure out who I am in terms of like the father to my kids and the husband to my wife. And also someone who's really comfortable of just getting up and leaving a church service. If I'm not tracking with what's being said from the pulpit, which was a weird thing to realize. Like, I feel like that was like a milestone for me. It's like, oh, you know what? Like, I've now formed enough of, and I've read enough, like, of to really kind of start figuring that stuff out that I can be like, yeah, I'm not feeling this and be able to walk out. Yeah. That's something. Yeah, that is something. You know? No small thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's no small thing, right? Um, 
and I've done it a couple times. And then <laughs> I, I feel that. I feel like oh, like I'm I'm making adult decisions now. It wasn't the mortgage that I've been paying, or the car payment, or having kids. It was I, I'm confident enough in. And I don't. I feel like opinion is such a bad word when it comes to like something that you have to hold so lightly as spirituality, mm-hmm. but um, belief or uh, I don't know whatever whatever that thing is that you hold in your hand and you hope the best of. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That felt like an adult thing, yeah. like. Like, I need to protect this thing, and it, I, I don't feel like it's being protected right now. Mm. No, that's so good. I'll, um, do you, for people who are listening who would want to get involved on some level with the One Campaign, like, what's what's the best place for them to start? Where yeah. can folks, where can they get involved? Uh, well, U2's Island Tour. Uh, <laughs> you can come find one of my colleagues. Uh, no, that is actually a pretty good way yeah but um you can go to our website just one.org um there's a little volunteer tab and you can kind of type in what part of the country you're in and it'll give you an email address of either me or one of my colleagues and then we will we'll call you that's pretty simple that's great it is simple but it's weird that like yeah it's like my email address is like on the web for anyone to come and find yeah does that ever get colorful is that does that become a thing? Not as much as you'd think. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of disappointing. <laughs> yeah, I know. That that or I just have stopped checking my messages. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, look, it's a, it's a great thing and you know, I had a the guy that got me into one who he held the same job I did. He was in he's a really wonderful guy who played guitar and a band that opened for us years and years ago. Um, really, really lovely dude. But, uh, he used to always say, it's like you come for, what did he say? It's like you come for the issue, but you stay for the relationships. Mm. I don't know if that's actually true, but it seems true because it's like, like I'm pretty good friends with like all the people that volunteer like within my region and, um, yeah, and there's like a, there's in some ways a kind of a weird sense of community mm. that sort of happens when you're doing this kind of work and, you know, you're in the trenches, yeah. so to speak. Like I said, like foreign aid is not the most sexy of things to go and lobby for. Mm. So you get a whole bunch of people together that they all feel like they're pushing that rock up a hill and there's some camaraderie yeah, <laughs> that yeah. takes place. Sure. Um, but yeah, and and specifically too, like I guess to to your audience of this, like I also am one of three or four people that work on the really kind of the faith centered, you know, objectives of the organization as well in North America, and that's been a really really interesting process over the past year of just kind of a little more than a year, I guess, but kind of unpacking. It's like, okay, what does this stuff look like within a, the context of a faith-based community. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just been really interesting because like historically, at least in the white conservative evangelical world, like advocacy 
for something other than kind of those couple of hot button issues since sure. the eighties, um, isn't like really a thing. And it's like activism is sort of a four letter word. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stigma that I feel like we've been unpacking mm. slowly, um, in those groups. But, uh, do you, and you feel like there's progress. Yeah, I do. I, I really do. It's crazy. Like literally tomorrow morning, Yes. Tomorrow morning we have, uh, you know, John down in Oklahoma city. Yeah, sure. No one listening to this is going to know. Right. But but I know John, you know, John, he's a pastor. Um, he's got a group of like when he called you last year to come meet with, uh, the Senator at that coffee shop, he's got another group of like five or so local pastors and the Senator gave him an hour tomorrow morning to come and talk about anything he wants. Oh, that's great. Which is kind of crazy. Yeah. You know, like no one, like, no one gets an hour with a U.S. Senator. Yeah. But somehow it's like, I don't know. He's got, he's got the magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I say, say that. I, I don't believe that. I, I think he prays about it a whole lot and he yeah. approaches it from a really centered kind of flat-footed way and yeah. um you know the senator sees the worth in that um so yeah i, I do think there's been progress mm. like there's progress happening tomorrow morning hopefully fingers mm-hmm. crossed that it doesn't go off the rails but mm-hmm. um i don't think it will and like that's amazing yeah, you know that is amazing truly um so yeah i mean there's, there's always hope. Yeah. Yeah, I do believe in that. everything. That's, that's right. Mm. Well, man, yeah, man. I'm so grateful <laughs> for your work and thank you for your time. That felt like a really kind of heavy, like hopeful, but heavy way to end this. But you like, know what? Is there a more appropriate way to, is there any other way to be hopeful right now? But um, <laughs> hope does have a weight to it. You know, I think it does, man. Hope, it, like, hope, hope, heavy. <laughs> hope has a gravity, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, I don't know, man. What about you? Does that ever happen? This is your thing. Does anyone ever turn around and go, how can I help you? No. All right. No, well, nobody, here we go. <laughs> let's, let's no go No one here. wants to help me, Mike. <laughs> That's BS. No one wants to. Come on. I have no friends. So no. <laughs> I'm just, I'm so, I'm so happy, by the way, that I've gotten through this whole thing without cursing. Well, you know what? That, we what's amazing. We, we still have debated about that, you know, because like in a way, you know, you, you, whether or not we want the explicit label on iTunes, it's the whole thing, but. Um, Probably, I mean, I would. Five F-bombs, I think at least five Yeah, I would, I would guess not, but. <laughs> Like any of the old guys from my band would be terrified with me in front of a microphone. Would they really? That's great. Yeah. It was like this unspoken. It's like, just don't let Hogan have a microphone. Like he's going to say something. He really should. We're not say. afraid of you here. That's um, it was it, your question to me was like, what, like what makes me hopeful or more just what? I don't know. You tell me. What is my question? What do you, what do you need? I mean, it's it's almost eleven. So it is. I mean, that list is probably fairly short in the near term, but well, you know, it's just such a um, it's a really interesting lane to be in right now. Kind of being a bit of a free agent because I am traveling a lot and speaking and writing these days, but not working for a particular institution, and that has 
advantages in one way and that, you know, you kind of do, there's a certain kind of freedom there to say what's really on your heart and to pursue things that you deeply believe in. But at the same time, it can be, um, it can be a lonely road too, because I feel like in kind of my own way, so much of my life is lived at these odd intersections and kind of like you came out of one world sort of into another. I feel like everything about my life from being this very Pentecostal Christian who's now in a more Anglican Episcopal context to feeling more and more over these years, a sense of movement towards just justice and mercy and activism, and all those things. And I, and for me, it's all very connected, but it's also, you know, it's, um, it's a lot. And I kind of feel like my, my sense of calling right now, um, just feels like it's always kind of morphing from season to season and having to stay adaptable and flexible in the ways that, you know, I think hopefully following the Holy spirit requires. Sure. But it's just, uh, it definitely, it definitely can feel, can feel lonely sometimes. And yet even that, I feel like there's a sense of calling to it. You know, like if you're, if you're dealing with a lot of people who are, who are sensing disillusionment and despair and don't know where they fit, what's more appropriate if that's your lane then that you also share in that sense of not yeah. knowing where to fit. And, but I think, I, I, you know, when you talk about coming into your own skin more at 40, I do think I'm at a place now where I'm, I'm, oh, I'm not thinking about that quite as hard anymore. Like, where do I fit? And just trying to be true to what I feel like has been given for me to do and trust that, yeah, that makes that's space really for interesting. Somehow. I don't, I, you know, I honestly don't think about where I fit anymore. Mm. I felt like I, I laid into that hard man for a long time. Like trying to figure out where I fit in the whole thing. You're supposed. You got to go. All right. Um, and a lot of that. I mean, a lot of that was just flat out insecurity. But also, it was like. I mean, you know, where do I fit in the work that I'm doing? Where do I fit in the context of playing an instrument with these five people? Where do I fit in? You know, name it. Right, being an only child. Like that'll do a number on you. Yeah, I, I know about that too. Um, but it's it's yeah, it's interesting that you kind of put it that way because I don't I don't think about that all that much anymore. I still have moments of like trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Sure. But I don't think about like where I fit, yeah. which is weird. I don't know when that shift took place. Mm. But it's important. Like I think doing it's the important. work. Is that what's done? It? Maybe what maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Like, um, yeah, that's a great question, man. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I feel like so much of this goes back to my past career, but it's like, that's informed so much of my current career in some ways, even though they're, they're completely different. But, um, we always used to kind of like go forward with this like maxim of, uh, you know, asking God to give you just enough light to see the next step and enough courage to take it, mm. which I feel like has been sort of a guiding principle in a lot of ways. It's kind of like how I ended up doing the work I do now. Yeah. Like I had no idea what I was doing, but it just, I followed like one tiny little step after another, after another. And it was absolutely terrifying, but it's like all of a sudden you turn around and you're like, Oh, I'm six years down the road and I've, you know, <laughs> I'm in a completely different career and like, this is what consumes a lot of my thought and time and it's good work, you know? Um, it's just bizarre. I don't know. 
I hope that for you. Yeah. That you that you have just that much light to see. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. I think that's and, a good, that's a good hope prayer. Just and that you can take it. Up. Totally. Yes, that's so good. I'm trying to wrap this up, but it's dawned on me. I thought I got at least asked something in this direction, if nothing else, for fun. I, you know, you were so responsible, and I'm forever grateful. It was summer of last year on the Joshua Tree tour when um, you helped get me to the Holy Grail to come <laughs> backstage. I'll never forget that night in general, just being at the Cleveland show, because the first arena concert I ever went to, and this shows how Christian subculture my bring was, mm-hmm. but the first arena concert I ever went to was seeing Michael W. Smith on the I'll Lead You Home tour. Nice. With Jars of Clay opening up. Yeah. And so it's like, after hanging out with you guys, getting to meet Bono, and then it's like, it's me, you, Stephen Furtick, Michael W. Smith, and Dan and- watching the U2 show, and I had just this, this unique moment of like, wow, like every stage of me is geeking out right now. Yeah. How funny. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it gives me like really literally, it's, like the things that give me the most joy in life are like cooking a meal that people enjoy. Like I love cooking something that someone enjoys. Like that gives me an immense amount of joy because I'm not that great of a cook, but I try. But it's also when like I have tools at my disposal to like have make something cool happen for a friend. I think it's just the neatest thing to do to be like, okay, well then here, here's the thing. Like go, go for it. Um, which is just so neat, but you know, it's interesting. Um, and I'm fine talking about this out loud. So, that show in particular, I don't think I've ever told you this. So that show in particular, I think I like, I don't know what it was. If it was just a lot of stress leading up like through that day. Cause we had that whole event kind of before the concert yeah, that right. night. Um, and just kind of like kind of freaked out about all the logistics of getting you guys to, you know, the meet and greets and all that kind of stuff. And then you get down there and you hear a dude, you know, talking about the Psalms which is just a weird otherworldly kind of thing anyways. Um, But anyway, for you, and I'm sure you'll remember this, but it's like, that was my first time to see the show that up close. Like I'd seen it like five times before that from like various points in a a stadium somewhere. Um, But that was my first time like being like that close to the stage for that particular tour. And it's so interesting because that screen, if you remember, was mm-hmm. just absolutely massive. So if you're where you, like our little group was, like, and you're looking at the stage, it literally takes up your entire field of vision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're within like the throw of the speaker so that like every cell is vibrating yes. when they when they play. Yes. And I remember in just track along with me. So like, you know, the first 30 minutes or so, like they do that little small set kind of yeah. on that auxiliary stage and they come back and there's literally no production until about a half an hour into the show at which point you know the screen fires up and it's um you know that's when they kind of would start the joshua tree part Mm -hmm. and like full disclosure like i've been listening to you two my entire life they're not i don't want to get myself in trouble they're a very very important band i would probably like in my they're in the top 10. I don't know if they're number one, that list changes a whole lot. Sure, so anyway, having sure. said that's that, not that's a very diplomatic qualifier. Um, but, um, and you know, I, I've seen the show like so many times, but it was so weird because it's like, 
you guys were having such a good time and I was kind of, I was 12 feet back from everybody just kind of on my own. I was like, this is your time. It's not mine. I'm just going to hang back and I'm going to watch the show for a while. And <laughs> they get up there and the, the screen fires up and the first image you see is that like giant panorama of the mountains in the distance and it's so loud and everything like everything in you is just rumbling and i just realized like i was just watching it and i wasn't feeling anything but all of a sudden i realized like three minutes in that i'm just sobbing wow. uncontrollably wow and i don't know what it was if it was just like the culmination of i had just been stressed out i was exhausted politically it was hard like yeah. there was just such an Everything is so intense and you just feel like a raw nerve all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's like, just the, <laughs> I don't know what it was, man. Like there was just something about like that moment. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm crying like a child wow. right now. And not like boo-hooing. It was right. just like waterworks for some reason. Mm. I'm like, and <laughs> standing here, I'm like thinking, I'm so glad None of the group is seeing this <laughs> right I now because I, I had. I would turn on uh, held you or something. I know. <laughs> I think. I think I just needed to sit in that moment for a second. I don't. I still don't know really what set it off or what dried it up. But it was a kind of an intense moment, man. Yeah. It was weird. Wow. What do you feel like it was? It was about ultimately for you. I don't know. I, yeah. I honestly don't know. I say I don't know. I'd probably know. I think it. You know it's a hopeful moment, right? Yeah. It's like to kind of circle back to that for a hot second. Like, and again, hope has a gravity to it. Um, and when you see something that's like so distinctly American is that landscape photo, yeah. you know, yeah. of, you know, wherever it is. I don't know where it is, somewhere out west. But um, that, and I don't know, man. It's like the sound of it is ho very hopeful. Yeah. It's like, it was like, I felt like it was sonically the thing I needed to hear and the visual I needed at that moment. And I think like the, just the gravity of that was like just a lot. I just needed to let some of that go for a second and just be like yeah like that is what it is acknowledge it and then keep going i love that thank you for sharing that that's beautiful yeah it's really cool what well, was a special i'm a weird i'm weirdly an open book right now i love me too <laughs> like this is good i like it well um we'll we'll hope for such for such hope-filled moments with that kind of gravity to it tomorrow night for the tour opener I'm maybe certainly, certainly i don't about that I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, that's great. So the suspense is actual. That's good. It is. I have. I have. I don't. I'm not real sure what we're in for. That's great. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Well, man, it is such a treat to have you here in Tulsa, and thanks so much for us. Well, thank you for having podcast. me. It's a pleasure. Really, to be really here. cool. So, so appreciate and appreciate your work, my friend. Just what you're doing. It's well, such a, it's good for my own soul to be with you, and just uh, you know, just the work you're doing in the world is so good. And just, just, just thank you. For, for all that and for the ways that you've connected me it's been really, really yeah good man who who knew this yeah. is where it would all lead back to Tulsa <laughs> back to Tulsa <laughs> to Tulsa Oklahoma it started at a dive bar in Austin and ended That's up in a, did. Did. I in love a that dive bar in Tulsa. that was an epic you had me that that, that that was such a 
true Austin. That was a true dive bar. It was perfect. That's you know, there was no way this relationship again. Could not again, it's like this open well book thing. There. It's like we don't know each other, but I'm going to take you somewhere. Yes, yes. it's important to me. Yes. <laughs> So good, man. Well, thank you again so much for your time, friend. Yeah, man. I really enjoyed thank hanging you. out. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Like an LP, each episode is divided into side A and side B. Side A could be a sermon, a conversation with a guest, but will always introduce some idea. Side B will always be a creative exploration of that idea through music, question and answering with listeners, or quirky rabbit trails off of side A for people who want the deep cuts, not just the singles. No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will be a resource in helping you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and sign up for our email list. Have a good day.